what you're about to listen to may include some potty talk. Then again, it may not. I hope it does, though. It's Thursday, October 25th, 2018 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. For the voters of Georgia, there is a fairly wide gap in the policy positions, background, and philosophy of their two gubernatorial candidates. Gubernatorial. Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp. Let's see what they have in common. They are two carbon-based life forms. They're Georgians. Yeah, that's about it. But that is fine because, you know what, at no point in an election do the candidates have to be an exact match. Aha! But exact match, the voters must be, at least in Georgia. That's the law that could prove the difference in the race. The registration of every voter has to be an exact match with a driver's license or social security form on file. Now, I was hearing a description of the exact match on a recent 538 podcast, and Amelia Thompson-DeVoe, note that Thompson-DeVoe, said this. So what this means is, you know, I have a hyphenated last name, which is certainly the bane of my existence when (laughs) filling out forms. Um, And sometimes, you know, I might forget to put the hyphen in my last name, someone else filling out the form for me might do that. If there's a hyphen in the driver's license, the DMV database, but not one on my voter registration form, then this means there is not an exact match between the two of them. And hypothetically, if this happened, I were trying to register to vote in Georgia, my file would be placed on pending status until it's corrected. This seemed to be a penny-ante, officious, inconvenience. I'm not diminishing it. It really can affect the vote. But when I was trying to think about why, why would it hit Democrats harder than Republicans? I was a little uh, nonplussed. Are black voters or Democratic voters less likely to have a perfect match than white voters? Well, one explanation is this. If you don't have a driver's license, you go through the Social Security Administration, and they seem to have made some small errors that shouldn't be huge if the state didn't have this stupid exact match law. So that's one explanation. But another, I think, lies in that hyphen, that tossed-off idea of the hyphen. So think about the people who have a hyphen in their name. Married women who combine their maiden name with their husband's name, that's hyphenated. They're much more likely to be Democrats. I've heard of men doing that too. They're definitely likely to be Democrats. And sometimes my friend Ben Mathis Lilly, he's one of these guys with a hyphenated last name because I think he's the son of a Mathis or a Lilly. Also, if someone with a hyphenated last name has a child, that child may take the hyphenated last name. This to me all seems Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. But also this, I think black people are more likely to have a hyphenated last name than white people. And I base this on my watching of sports. So I tried to look this up through the Social Security Administration. And by I tried, I mean, I tasked my producers with it. They did a great job. So I said, okay, guys, forget the official statistics. I'm going with the NFL because I watch the NFL every weekend and I see players and a lot of them have hyphenated last names. And as I was thinking to myself about these players I knew with hyphenated last names like Darius Hayward Bay or Jason Pierre-Paul or Ricky Seal-Jones, I said, oh, they're all African-American players, the ones I can think of at least. The NFL is about two-thirds black, one-third white. Almost everyone there is American, although I am going to talk about one exception to that. And so I looked up everyone who played at least four games in the NFL this year, and there were 20 players listed with hyphenated last names. 
Of those 20, so it should be about uh, 14 and 6 African-American to white, it was actually 18 African-American and two were white. One of them is not a white American. He's Laurent Duvarnay Tardif, who is Canadian and actually an MD. He's a doctor. And the other white guy was Evan Dietrich Smith, although he's no longer a hyphenate. Here he is a couple years ago describing to reporters why he dropped the Dietrich and now is just Smith. You know, it is it is a hassle. I mean, I have to write it. I didn't want my daughter to have to deal with it her whole life. So, uh, you know, go. But I went by Evan Smith for a really long time. So it's really nothing new to me. Probably much more new to everybody else because nobody knew that beforehand. It is a hassle. It certainly is a hassle. And that is, I think, what Georgia election officials were banking on to make it just a little more onerous on African-Americans. Wait, is that African-American or African-Space American? Either way, not an exact match. On today's show, I spiel about Trump's lies, the caravan, media cliches, and Megyn Kelly. Yeah, it gets to all those things somehow. But first, the stock market rebounded a little bit today. But what do we make of that? What do we make of all this? And luckily, by we, I don't mean me. I mean CNBC's Ron and Santa. He is here to talk the macro and the micro. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. The markets, oh, the markets, uh, they're up or maybe down. This will actually air a few days after I'm talking. But that's the point. I like to take a long view, but it's hard when they're plunging by hundreds of points a day. So the person who I think gives me the best insights and knows the most about the day in, day out of the market is Ron Insana. You probably have seen him on CNBC where he is a senior analyst. And how I know Ron is I go on some MSNBC shows and he's there. And then afterwards, we have a conversation that's like, you know, 12 times as exciting as anything that happened on the air. <laughs> Hello, Ron. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Do you, I know a one-day, a two-day market swing doesn't really matter. When does it start to matter? Well, I think it starts to matter when you see a couple of things start to shape up. When the markets begin to suss out a recession, when you see bond market interest rates 
show warning signs that an economic slowdown is coming or the impact of a trade war is going to slow the global economy. And then the stock market starts to sell off in a meaningful way, yes. a sustained basis. But that's can troublesome. We, can we know it's meaningful in the moment? Can, can we only know that in retrospect? I mean, you say when they suss out a recession, they've, you know, I know they say economists have predicted 12 of the last three recessions, but Correct. sometimes the markets pull back and they're wrong. And they were really nervous a lot about this tariff stuff and, until they weren't. Right. And look, I mean, I look at a combination of markets. I, the stock market and, and, and Paul Samuelson to kind of quote the, the reference you made said that the stock market had predicted eleven out of the last nine recessions. Yeah, and and so the stock market by itself is not a great economic indicator. When you couple it though with the direction of interest rates, when you watch Federal Reserve policy, when you watch the value of the dollar, and what economically sensitive commodities are doing, when they all send the same message at the same time, usually get six to nine to twelve months lead time before a recession actually hits. Mm-hmm. So that's the way I look at it. It's not any given day. It's not even a, uh, you have a correction of 10%. So what? That happens on a very regular basis. It's when you get into a sustained pattern of selling, when you see interest rates dropping precipitously, commodity prices falling at the same time, then you start to get a little nervous about the outlook. Yeah. Do, do you think that we should still be telling as part of, as a de facto part of every newscast, we should be saying what the S&P did and what the Dow did that yes. day? Yes. Look, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, this notion of, of, of being an ostrich when it comes to the financial markets and looking at your statements, you know, once or twice a year or not paying attention to what's happening in the markets, that's one other element of how you get blindsided in mm. life, right? I mean, so in as much as, you know, does it mean anything on a day-to-day basis? Not necessarily, but it's part of a mosaic that you have to put together for yourself every single day. Financial markets matter. You don't want to be um, unaware of things happening in the financial markets because ultimately, as we know from 2007 and 2008, they can affect the real economy, both for good and ill, right? You can, you can have something as arcane that transpired during the last financial crisis where you had these derivatives that imploded, Wall Street collapsed, the banks were almost gone. That was a big deal. And for people who weren't paying attention and were trying to flip homes into 2008, you know, individuals were getting their heads handed to them. So to be broadly aware of the economic environment, which includes the behavior of the financial markets, I think is important. And I think it's still, in a certain sense, when you look at general news, I I think it's incumbent upon every news organization to provide that information because I think individuals need to know. And our economic education for our kids is absolutely awful. They don't teach economics properly in high school or in college. They don't prepare kids to understand what it means to borrow, to save, to put away for retirement, education, all those different things. Yeah. I would, I would bet that a good third of the people running for president could not articulate what the relationship is to from a bond price to a bond yield. I would tell you that it's closer to 99%. No, running Absolute, for president? Abs- Listen, I, I've interviewed a lot of guys yeah. over the course of my career running for president yeah. and had conversations. Well, Carly Fiorina knew it. Uh, maybe. Um, and by the way, this is not a complex relationship. It's called inverse. It is, <laughs> yeah. but I've had some conversations with presidential candidates where their lack of understanding of basic economics was purely mind-blowing. Wow. Not only did they not understand, they also didn't care that they didn't understand. And that was the scarier part Were these people who were well-regarded in that realm or not? I mean, they were probably more foreign policy-leaning or expert in something else. Yeah. But had been around Maybe long enough. surgeons? No, 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 not one of those. <laughs> um, had been around long enough yeah. to know and should care. Yeah. As arcane as some of this stuff can be, yeah. you don't have to know about what some quantitative shop is doing with algorithms down the street. But do you want to know what the role of each financial institution is in the marketplace to understand what could go right and what could go wrong? 
I think it's incumbent upon politicians to know that. And generally speaking, from my experience, they don't. Have you had much interaction with Elizabeth Warren? I have not. And, and I don't think she knows a lot about economics. I mean, she's a good lawyer probably. But I, I do think that when, when you start getting into the realm of, of populist finance – you can take things to an extreme where everything is bad and yeah. everyone is evil yeah. and everyone's out to screw you. Well, now she's been outflanked. Now she's the moderate in that now realm. Now she is the moderate in that realm. And, and, you know, look, Bernie does the same thing, right? Yeah. And there is an element of truth to it that the House wins more often than not. But that's also slightly irrelevant compared to what you as an individual want to do, yeah. which is save money for your retirement. Yes, you, some of your returns are going to get eaten in fees. That needs to be addressed. You know, yes, Wall Street takes big risks when there are moments that they have government backing to do so. Um, and that needs to be regulated and watched carefully. And, and, and risk management is a function that the financial arm of the government should engage in all the time. Yeah. But, you know, this notion that you're just always getting screwed day in and day out and, and, and the way in which they put it creates this us-against-them mentality, which I don't think is terribly productive. Do you think that uh, – so there's the criticism that I understand why a person would cotton to it. No one went to jail in the last financial crisis. But like, OK, point to the crimes would be a counterpoint to that. What do you think of just that fact uh, and if people are upset that no one was jailed? So we've had this argument quite a bit. Not, and I am one who was in favor of having maybe jailed a couple of people, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's not that you just hang the usual suspects like, yeah. you know, um, in gangs of New York, you know, when, when uh, Boss Tweed goes, you know, get four or five guys and you know, let's just, you know, whoever. Um, look, from a Sarbanes-Oxley perspective where a CEO signs what turns out to be a materially false statement, financial statement, he is personally liable, right? That's what Sarbanes-Oxley said. Yeah. And I think we have a pretty good idea that several different Wall Street CEOs signed financial statements that had material falsehoods in them, and yet they were never prosecuted. Now, granted, it might have been hard to prove intent, but I do think there should have been some financial clawback. There should have been some penalty for presiding over a period in which risk was totally ignored depositor or customer money was put at risk. In fact, the whole economy was put at risk by some of these arcane instruments mm -hmm. that had very few rules and very little understanding around them. So I, I think certain people should have been punished. And I think that would have gone a long way also in giving the public confidence in the system. We got the bailout, but we didn't get the retribution. I'm not a huge fan of that, but there were clearly people who knew what they were doing and knew what they were doing was an enormous roll of the dice, and yeah. they never paid anything for it. During the campaign, it seemed that for the first time in my life, there was a true divergence between how the different parties defined the economy. Yeah. Uh, it had always been essentially like the Republicans are still defining it, uh, GDP growth. But then there was a strain of, well, it is GDP growth, but it's also income inequality. Yeah. And if it grows for some, but not for all, you see you see bits of this throughout American history, but this was a divergence. I think now that Trump has won, maybe him and the Republicans have stopped uh, making the nods to income inequality. But what do you think? Should we define the economy more in terms of income inequality? And is that idea going to be fundamental to our understanding of the economy? Well, I think it always has been and should be insofar as a rising tide should lift all boats. Yeah. And, and so you want... And that is a nod, since Kennedy yeah. said that. That's a nod that the idea has always been out there. Yeah. And, and so you look at what's happening now. And actually, the fastest wage growth at the moment is coming at the lower end of the income spectrum. It's been a long, delayed experience, but there is some catch-up going on right now. Wages are growing slightly north of 3% ahead of the inflation rate. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot. But again, if the inflation rate is not growing faster than 3%, 
you're getting ahead slightly. Right. Right. And, right. and median income is up to like $59,000 a year for a family of four. Household net worth, although again, this accrues again to the, to the, the wealthier of, among us, is up to $107 trillion. On an inflation-adjusted basis, that is an all-time high. Yeah. So – Yes. Do that. Do the math between – and that's uh, household net worth is yeah. worth a trillion. And there are – 107 trillion. 100 trillion. And there are 100 million households in the U.S.? About 110, 120, yeah. Okay. 156 million workers. Yeah. So, 335 million people. So that means – You do the, that math. What is that? Is that 10,000 per <laughs> some, household? Some, yeah, something Yeah, I think it's 10,000. That's not bad. Yeah, there are all kinds of ways to look at the economy. What you really want is broad-based, relatively evenly distributed – prosperity. And I don't mean that in a redistributionist sense. You want an economy that's strong, that provides a good living for low-skilled, medium-skilled, and high-skilled workers, where everyone gets a piece of the pie. I mean, it's impossible to say, listen, you know, the, the guy who's, who's landscaping should be making the same amount as a guy who starts a business and employs two, three, four hundred thousand people and does it well. You know, there's always going to be a disparity in incomes. But you do want... And this is a big topic of, of debate among economists, equality of outcomes versus equality of opportunity, right. right? You do want equality of opportunity. You want those at the lowest end uh, of the economic ladder to be able to at least scale a few rungs over the course of their lifetime, if not go all the way to the top. You know, you want that opportunity set there. That's what the country's always been about. And you hope that there's a relatively broad distribution of, of income over time. And we've had different periods in our history, 1920s and today, where income inequality was this wide. It, it typically pr presents some problems for an economy going forward. Yeah. I was just with a trucking executive or a shipping executive who said that they just bought a company where the average W-2 was $120,000 a year for a truck driver. It's a lot of money if you don't go to college, right? I yeah. mean, it's, 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 not a high, it's a skilled job. It's not highly skilled. Now, what is interesting, though, when you look at cyber, for instance, let's say you have retailing experience, but you don't have any technology experience. There are companies that are willing to pull you on and train you and get you your cyber certificate, and you can make a good living even if you don't have a college degree, you don't have an associate's or less, and go into a field, what they call a skill-adjacent position yeah. in cybersecurity, where you can make a very good living, a middle-class or higher living, if you pick and choose correctly among those jobs where there are shortages. Now, welders aren't going away uh, to a large extent. That pays $100,000 a year. Are there enough jobs like that in the economy? I mean, yeah. It, you th and there will continue to be uh, with automation? Look, I think for the time being, I mean, you know, there's the some uh, futurists like to call this the trough of disillusion where with autonomous vehicles, right, we've seen them start and stop and fail. And now we don't know whether it's five years or 10 years out before yeah. that becomes the norm. We don't know uh, how robotics will affect Industry Certainly it might displace some workers, but then you need somebody to make the robots. So, you know, eventually will robots be making robots be making robots and then designing the software too? I don't know. Yeah. But right now there, there is, I think, enough of a shelf life that for kids who need jobs and then maybe they can transition later and get an additional, you know, degree or certificate. I've heard anecdotes, like you said, about certain um, technology adjacent jobs that can, I, I suppose anyone can get a certificate in coding and can make a good living. But it w seemed a lot easier to get those coal mining jobs. It seems a lot, you know where to go to get that trucker job. And those aren't great jobs for the environment and they're not 
not going to be here in the future. They're not great for your lungs either. They're not great for, they're they're probably not even fun day in, day out. Sure, we all love CB radio and (laughs) the the lore of the open road, but you know, 16 hours, you know, having essentially to do some meth variant to stay up. It's not a fun life. Yeah, a lot of Adderall, a lot of weed. Right, right? but from what the picture I get is huge swaths of the economy, jobs that people know where they were, that your dad did, that you could go into, and you wouldn't have any guarantee of a great life, but it was right there for you. All that's going away, and maybe we can get here and there some exceptions to this rule of you have to be college-educated. The you know blue-collar worker with a strong back is not going to have a great middle-class life in America. That's probably true, but I also think that it's a myth that it was true forever. Right. I mean, this really is a post-World War II phenomenon where in the wake of Europe's destruction, the physical destruction of Japan, in 1946 to 1971, the United States was the biggest economy in the world with three and a half percent of the world's population. And with the Marshall Plan, both in Europe and in Japan, we were supplying goods and to a lesser extent services all around the world. China was not online. India was not online. There was no Latin America. So we were it. We could afford Everything, everybody who wanted a job got a job because we not only made stuff for domestic consumption, we made stuff for overseas consumption. Eventually, that was going to go away. And so I think everybody did this linear extrapolation, just this straight line view that the U.S. would remain as dominant in that period forevermore. And it just wasn't the case, and nor could it be. I mean, you would then otherwise have, you know, a whole world of consumers on relatively low wages buying American-made products. Right. You, you can't have that. All right. Ron Insana is a senior analyst for CNBC, where he is, you know, heard on the street, through the squawk box, at the morning bell. You know all the CNBC all shows. All those places, yeah. yeah. Street, well, the street signs is gone. That used to be my show. <laughs> that's, that's been buried. Well, now, now that he's done the gist, it's uh, just pretty much the culmination of a wonderful career. Absolutely. Thank you, Ron. Thanks. I appreciate it. Let me tell you about the next Slate Live event that I'm involved in. Slate's best political minds will break down the midterm elections and possibly just break down, depending on the results of the midterm elections, in a live conversation in Brooklyn. It'll be me, Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, and Jim Newell at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. I can walk there. I know where that is. That will be the Thursday after Election Day, which is to say November 8th. That will be November 8th. Join us for the lively recap discussion. We'll take your questions, too. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that event. And now the spiel. This is going to be a migrant caravan of language, if you will. It will be overflowing and wending. And once it reaches its destination, you may choose to accept it. If you have sympathy in your heart, though, probably you'll reject it. Okay, here we go. You know you have a good political position these days if Donald Trump lies and claims that position as his own couple of cases, promising middle-class tax cuts that no one but him have ever heard of. Well, I don't mean no one but him have heard of them. The Chinese and the Russians probably have heard of it if he blabbed about them on his unsecure cell phones, Sean Hannity. But when Trump says, we're going to give you a tax cut that you can actually feel, that is just telling the Democrats that they have the winning position on this issue, that the tax cuts that the Republicans did pass were not ones that the middle class could feel. 
Or when Trump says that Democrats are going to take away health care for those with pre-existing conditions, he is telling Democrats, you guys actually have the right position. This is popular with Americans. You are the champions of the health care bill, which protects those with pre-existing conditions. I will try to lie and claim your position is mine, but it's really telling us all who has the right policy position. Then you get to the caravan, another big thing he's been saying. A little bit different. When he says Middle Easterners are in the caravan, I don't think that's really a referendum on the fact that Democrats have never lied about the caravan as much as it is that he's pinning all his hopes on this burgeoning mass of humanity that sadly fled their homes in Honduras, but realistically has little chance to enter the U.S. To demonize the caravan is monstrous. To be scared of the caravan is silly. To lie about the caravan is immoral. To earnestly wonder what to do about the caravan, that is vexing. And those are all good words to describe the caravan. This one's not. President Trump says blame the Democrats and levels some controversial theories about who's part of the caravan. Ugh, controversial. Just like a USA Today story, here's the lead. The controversial Central American migrant caravan, which President Donald Trump has turned into a U.S. midterms election issue. I don't think I've ever used the word controversial. I mean, not consciously on the air, not in, I think, 12 years. You could probably find one example of it slipping through. But I hate using controversial. It doesn't say anything. So on Twitter, which is a popular form of communication these days, I tweeted this. I linked to that USA Today story and I said, lesson to all reporters and editors, controversial is the lamest word in journalism. Among the agreement, I got this response. Lame is an ableist slur. The person who said that to me meant it. Adding, calling something lame is an ableist slur. Use meaningless. So I should say that lesson to all reporters and editors controversial is the most meaningless word in journalism, the most without meaning, the least meaningful. Yeah, I guess I could say that, but the punchy one-syllable word lame is much better. Lame, lame, I mean lame, in a sense entirely independent of a disabled person, in the colloquial sense, like feeble or weak, which if you stop to think about it are probably ableist too. So here's my stance. I'm not going to say I'll not listen to what people who really are disabled think. I'm not, I'm not a monster. If the majority, so not even the majority, if, I don't know, 39.5% of disabled people honestly object to the word lame in other contexts, I'll stop using it. But other than that, my stance is as follows. Write this down. We cripple communication when we mute the discourse, which is a fact we are becoming blind to. Feel me? This all brings me to Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly reportedly lost her show on NBC for wearing blackface. Now, of course, I get that. It's 2018. You can't, what? What's that? Oh, she she didn't wear blackface? What? Oh, oh. She lost her show for unapologetically advocating the wearing of blackface. What? She did apologize. But was it one of these, if you were, oh, no, internally and externally? Okay. She lost her show for an expression of verbal speech in defense of symbolic speech, which was wrong. Another way of saying it is she lost her show because she had a bad opinion. Now, we could all agree that she probably lost her show for bad ratings or if she had great ratings, the bad opinion would have been dealt with in some way other than losing her show. But I gotta say, I find this shocking and horrible. 
mean, I found Megyn Kelly's NBC show horrible. Well, not horrible, but yeah. not for me. Subpar. Let's just say that. But unless NBC is using this as cover for a really obvious business decision that on its economic merits alone was very compelling. And you know what? Even if they are doing that, I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong to fire Megyn Kelly for having one instance of a bad opinion that she immediately apologized for. And Megyn Kelly was not just un-PC. She was wrong on this, and she has a history of being wrong on racial issues. On Fox, she did so many misleading segments about Black Panthers intimidating voters at polls. And on this show, I talked at length about how her Black Lives Matter policing expert was Mark Furman. Yeah, OJ trial Mark Furman. He wasn't on once or twice. He was on dozens and dozens of times. But NBC knew that, and they hired her, And now they give her a talk show. They say, talk about these issues. And she does. And she steps in it. And she gets one wrong. And they jettison her. I think it's bad. I think it's frail. I think it's chilling. And yeah, I'll say it. I think it's lame. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the show. They're never decrepit or incapacitated. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She does that in a way that's neither weak nor infirm. The gist, brave. Brave? Am I brave? Am I a hero? I don't know. Let's just say this. At the risk of being psoriasis I am never lily-livered. Oomperu, depuru, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>